folks, and welcome to The Eclectic Humanist, Season 2, Episode 9. It's been a long time since I made one of these, so before I get into the topic of today's little talk, maybe a little bit of explanation as to why I stopped and why I'm starting again might not be a bad idea. The last episode I did was supposed to be the first in a sequence on the Diamond Sutra, which I do plan on getting back to at some point. But like so many of you, I'm sure, by midwinter, as we came up on the one-year anniversary of lockdown, at least in the part of the world where I live, I found myself psychologically and physically and emotionally exhausted. And as it was taking me at that time, roughly between 10 and 12 hours to produce a single hour class, and as I had to produce several of those a week, I found that I could no longer justify, after staying up till 3 o'clock in the morning as many nights per week as not, putting in an additional 8 to 10 hours for these little episodes, as much as I love doing them. And since then, since the end of the school year, quite frankly, I've been focusing on re-establishing both my physical and my mental health, which, again, as probably is the case with many of you, had taken a bit of a beating over the last little while. In fact, I'd more or less come to the conclusion that I was no longer going to be doing any of these episodes at all. What changed my mind was, I guess, well, (laughs) I'm feeling better, and um, also some of the social discourse that's going on a year and a half into the pandemic now with large swaths of the population still rejecting the science and rejecting the ethical arguments to take proper precautions. This, as a citizen, bothers me. And as a teacher, it bothers me as well. Because the celebration of ignorance flies in the face of everything around which I have actually built my life. So, as I launch back into these, and I don't know how regular they're going to be, I'm thinking maybe... Every couple of weeks, I might put one out. But as I was saying, as I launch back into these, what I'd like to do is answer a question that I asked a class of mine shortly after lockdown began. The class was Non-Western Perspectives on Human Rights. And just as I was about to launch into the section on Confucianism with which the course closes, in-person classes shut down. And basically the world changed. Well, one of the assignments I gave to my students once we were able to get ourselves together for running classes online was what would be a Confucian response to COVID-19? The answers that I got quite genuinely impressed me. This was a group of very smart people who had clearly put a lot of thought into their reading and to their arguments. So much of what I say during today's episode will be, at least in part, attributable to the papers coming out of that class, which I no longer have access to and therefore can't cite directly. I just want to make sure I'm not claiming credit for ideas that aren't entirely mine. So in short, I guess what I'm doing in today's little talk is putting myself in my own hot seat and demanding of myself that which I demand of my students. Now, of course, before I answer the question, I need to lay out some background, some foundational stuff explain perhaps some of the basics of Confucianism, although I've done some of that in an earlier episode, it's been a while, and also say a bit about the social context, both over the last year and in the current moment, into which, and in many ways against which, I'm speaking. 
as of this recording, which will probably be spread out over a few days in early August. The majority of people in both Canada and the United States have received at least one dose of one of the recognized vaccines. I think vaccination rates are currently sitting at around something like 70% of the general population. At the same time, among the unvaccinated, infections are spreading to the point where in parts of the continent, particularly in the American South, intensive care units are once again overwhelmed in nearly as bad a state as they were during the worst periods of this past winter. There is also a new variant, the Delta variant, of which I'm sure you've heard, against which the immunity provided by the vaccine does not seem to be quite as effective. As a result, it looks like we may be going into a fourth wave of the pandemic. Some of this perhaps, of course, is not preventable because the virus does mutate, but much of it is preventable simply by taking the fucking vaccine and wearing a goddamn motherfucking mask. And yet we do have large segments of the population most prevalently in the states in the South and most prevalently in Canada in the West, that are flagrantly disregarding any appropriate protocols recommended by legitimate medical experts. People continue to disregard and demonstrate against recognized medical best practices and to treat the minimal effort involved in wearing a mask as if it were some sort of imposition as if it were a violation of their freedom. And it's on that question of freedom, of of individual freedom, which of course is inevitably going to be linked to individual responsibility, that I think I might like to find my way into the actual topic. Western society, and particularly the North American version of it, is very individualistic, at least in its rhetoric and its underlying political philosophies. Confucianism is not individualistic, it is communitarian. That's not to say there isn't room for the individual in it, I believe there is, but the focus of Confucian philosophy as a political philosophy is the community, the well-being of the community, or in short, care for others. And it's on this topic of caring for others that I think I would like to jump into the text. I'm going to be reading Just two passages, one of which I have read before, discussing those a little bit just on their own merits, because it's been a while since we've done this. And from there, I think I'd like to jump into the specific relevance of the argument of the text to the situation during the pandemic. My touchstone text here is Mengzi, often Latinized as Mencius, as Mencius provides a more fully fleshed out understanding of human nature than Confucius actually does. And the first passage I'm going to read is passage 2a6, as translated by Brian Van Norden, in case you want to check me up on this. The passage goes like this, and this is the most famous passage out of Mencius. Mencius said, All humans have hearts that are not unfeeling toward others. The former kings had hearts that were not unfeeling toward others, so they had governments that were not unfeeling toward others. If one puts into practice a government that is not unfeeling toward others by means of a heart that is not unfeeling toward others, bringing order to the world is in the palm of your hand. The reason why I say that all humans have hearts that are not unfeeling toward others is this. Suppose someone saw a child about to fall into a well 
Anyone in such a situation would have a feeling of alarm and compassion, not because one sought to get in good with the child's parents, not because one wanted fame among one's neighbors and friends, and not because one would dislike the sound of the child's cries. From this we can see that if one is without the feeling of compassion, one is not human. If one is without the feeling of disdain, one is not human. If one is without the feeling of deference, one is not human. If one is without the feeling of approval and disapproval, one is not human. The feeling of compassion is the sprout of benevolence. The feeling of disdain is the sprout of righteousness. The feeling of deference is the sprout of propriety. The feeling of approval and disapproval is the sprout of wisdom. People's having these four sprouts is like their having four limbs. To have these four sprouts, yet claim that one is incapable of virtue, is to steal from oneself. To say that one's ruler is incapable is to steal from one's ruler. In general, having these four sprouts within oneself, if one knows to fill them all out, it will be like a fire starting up, a spring breaking through. If one can merely fill them out, they will be sufficient to care for all within the four seas. If one merely fails to fill them out, they will be insufficient to serve one's parents. And before I say a few things about this passage... I think I'd also like to to bring in the only other passage that I'll be referring to in today's talk. And this is looking back a little earlier in the text to passage 1A7, paragraph 12. Treat your elders as elders and extend to the elders of others. Treat your young ones as young ones and extend it to the young ones of others. And you can turn the world in the palm of your hand. The ode says, he set an example for his little woman It extended to his brothers, and so he controlled his clan and state. This means simply that he took this feeling and applied it to that. Hence, if one extends one's kindness, it will be sufficient to care for all within the four seas. If one does not extend one's kindness, one will lack the wherewithal to care for one's wife and children. That in which the ancients greatly exceeded others was no other than this. They were simply good at extending what they did. Now, in that first passage I read, 2a6, it's here where Mencius gives one of his best accounts of human nature. And one of the things I've always loved about this passage is his recognition, and I do believe it is a recognition, which turns out to be compatible with the current understanding we have emerging from both neuroscience and primatology, that we are naturally empathetic creatures. That is, we are not solely lone, rational, self-interested actors, as much of the foundational political theory of the modern West would have us believe that we are. More on that in a future episode. But rather, we have spontaneous impulses toward the well-being of others. Not that these impulses are always fully fleshed out, but simply that they are present in the human character, or most of the time that they are present in the human character. He mentions the child falling into the well as an emergency, a moral emergency, something that provokes an immediate sense of alarm without there being time for any previous deliberate calculation of any kind. That is, it speaks to our initial impulses. Even as you were listening to this, if you're picturing a child falling into the well, most of you, I'm fairly confident, would feel a momentary sense of alarm. 
even simply add an abstracted mental image. This is a thought experiment, and I think a very useful one. And Mencius quickly dispenses with notions that we might call Hobbesian, that what we think of as being empathetic is really based on calculations of our own well-being, simply by virtue of pointing out that the situation itself doesn't allow time for those calculations. In fact, Mencius goes a little further to say that if we don't have these benevolent impulses, these spontaneous urges toward the well-being of others, or what he calls hearts that are not unfeeling toward others, that we are not, well, he uses the word human. He's not, of course, speaking to us being biologically human. He's speaking of us being morally human. If I were to translate this into the discourse of contemporary society, what he's simply doing here is saying those who are completely devoid of empathy are sociopaths. And a sociopath is not morally human. They don't fit fully into the human moral world. I agree with him on this. That is, if we are acting always only ever in our own self-interest without any regard for the well-being of others, even in those situations of moral emergency, we are effectively sociopaths. We are pathologically selfish, pathologically self-interested, and not fully morally human in the Confucian sense. But those impulses toward community are not themselves fully-fledged virtues. They are what he calls sprouts, the sprouts of virtues. And he names the virtues themselves of which they are the sprouts, namely benevolence, which in classical Chinese is ren and is often translated as humanity. Righteousness, which in classical Chinese is yi and is often also translated as duty and can, interestingly, I think, be translated as well as responsibility. Propriety, which is li and can also be translated as ritual, and wisdom, ji, which can also be translated as both intelligence and understanding. These are the four virtues with which Mencius is most concerned, although certainly there are other ones as well. And the way he describes their development in this passage is simply a matter of what he calls filling them out. Another term that's often used is extending. That is, we have in our own nature sufficient impulses to both engage us with our fellow humans and also, when we examine those impulses, tell us what we need to know about other humans who, after all, are of the same type, of the same kind of being as we are. That is, ethical cultivation for Mencius, begins with those spontaneous impulses toward community, a fleshing out of those, and a conscious examination of what those are in oneself and of one's own impulses and responses, which can then be extended to others, based simply on what we now know about ourselves. And it's simply in our succeeding or failing in the cultivation of those sprouts of virtues that we succeed or fail as ethical human beings, as human beings in society. And really, I think, of human beings worthy of being in society. This is an ethic of self-cultivation that requires no special learning, but a great deal of thought and introspection and effort to bring to full fruition.
In fact, it's a, a lifetime engagement with oneself and one's world, and only through that conscious engagement that we actually can bring those virtues to full fruition. And it is, moreover, only through our interactions with society, with our community, that we can be fully human. We are not fully human in isolation. Being human necessarily means being in community. I'll return to this, I think, in a few minutes, but first I think I'd like to say a few words about that other passage that I read from earlier in the text. What I'd most like to dwell on here is the line, treat your elders as elders and extend it to the elders of others. Treat your young ones as young ones and extend that to the young ones of others. The virtue here, particularly with the comment on elders, is shall, generally translated as filial piety, the respect and genuine consideration owed to one's parents. There is also, in the same passage, the consideration that any decent parent owes to their child. Paired with this is the notion of extension, which I've already mentioned, that we learn about our moral world, our social world, from our immediate relationships and from observations of ourselves. We learn how to be people in community by being people in family. But again, because we are all of the same kind, what we owe to, say, our parents, we can also extend to the elders of others. That is, respect for one's seniors as a default position arises naturally from the virtue of filial piety and the habit of extension that arises from an honest interrogation of one's own nature. So, what does any of this have to do with COVID-19 and how one ought to conduct oneself during a global health crisis, particularly a crisis in which the elder are more vulnerable than most? Well, let's start with those twin virtues of humanity and duty, or benevolence and righteousness, if you will. These are, within the tradition, often viewed as sort of flip sides of the same coin. That a mindset of genuine humanity towards others, a mindset of benevolence, will necessarily manifest itself in conduct that is respectful and genuinely caring of the well-being of others. That is, a recognition of our common humanity logically results in a recognition of those basic duties that we owe each other simply by virtue of being human. This is, as I've said, not an individualistic view of human nature, but rather a communal view, a recognition, I would say, that we do in fact arise from community, that we don't start in a state of nature, alone, solitary, rational, and self-interested, but rather are and already and always already have been communal creatures. That the vision of the lone, self-interested individual is such a pathetic truncation of what a human being actually is that it's worthy really only, I think, of pity or the deepest intellectual contempt. Or to put it another way, we be human by being in community. And we recognize that the community has a legitimate claim on our behavior, on our conduct, and on our due regard. 
And while Confucianism does acknowledge that there are concentric circles within which you owe more and outside of which you owe less in terms of regard for other people, you owe more to your parents than the parents of your friends and more to the parents of your friends than you do to the parents of strangers, for example. And the same thing applies to other relationships, not just parents. This is simply a recognition that we also always exist in specific relationships and that these specific relationships carry specific obligations. But at the same time, those ever-increasing concentric circles as you move out take a very long time to reach the point where nothing is owed, where no regard is owed. This is how extension works. The more you extend a recognition of your own nature and the obligations arising from your own relationships that arise from that nature, the more you're able to both see your commonality with other people and to act on that commonality in an ethical way. Now, I'm going to skip over the virtue of Li, propriety or ritual. I don't think that's particularly pertinent at the moment. And move on to the virtue of Ji, which is wisdom, knowledge, understanding. That is, there is a deep regard within the Confucian tradition for the importance of knowledge, for the importance of a genuine rather than a superficial understanding of the circumstances within which one lives and to which one responds. This virtue of understanding is, like all virtues, linked to sort of an umbrella virtue of sincerity, by which we don't merely give lip service to something. We don't, for example, invoke cherry-picked examples of select articles that appear to support a preconceived narrative or point of view, but we look at the facts as they are. We look at circumstances as they are, and we compare them to our honest understanding, to an intellectually honest approach, and draw the appropriate conclusions. Bound up in this, and this is something I have lived experience with, having spent several years living in a society that was deeply imbued with Confucian ethics, even though Confucianism itself wasn't always the uppermost worldview on people's minds. There is a, a deep respect in Confucianism for education, for learning. Teachers are revered. People who know things are held in a regard proportional to their expertise in ways that may seem strange or foreign to a typical person of modern North America, which in itself is a deeply anti-intellectual culture in many ways. That is, knowledge itself and an understanding of the relationship of specific knowledge to one's conduct, both pragmatic and ethical, is essential to navigating honestly and ethically one's way through the world, one's way through the web of, of social obligations on the one hand and rights and privileges on the other. That is to say, there is a very strong ought in the statement, those who don't know ought to defer to those who do. This may seem commonsensical, it may seem obvious. If you need an operation done on your brain, you're going to go to a brain surgeon, not to a plumber. And similarly, when you need some work done on your plumbing, you're going to go to a plumber, not to a brain surgeon. The things we study, the things we learn, the things we devote our lives to understanding, we do tend to develop expertise in. And that expertise is in itself useful to society, useful to the well-being of people at large. It's when we disregard that expertise in favor of our own subjective narratives, our own preconceived stories of, of how 
society works or how we imagine it ought to work, that things start going off the rails and you have idiots with red hats proclaiming their freedom from the most basic public health measures that one could really imagine. Wearing a mask so that people who are maybe older than you and not as resistant in terms of their immune systems as you might not die. That is, the virtue of shao, filial piety, extending one's concern that naturally accrues to one's parents to other members of older generations who in this case are very often immunocompromised. And quite frankly, extending that regard to any other member of your society that's immunocompromised is, is a moral obligation. It, it's an ethical ought against which the ma-freedom crowd projects nothing but an egoistic self-interest that most mature human beings in most parts of the world manage to outgrow by the time they are two. So, to sum up, how would a Confucian respond to COVID-19? Well, they would have to start from the understanding that we are naturally empathetic creatures, that spontaneous impulses toward each other's well-being is a part of who we always already are, and that we succeed or fail as ethical beings to the degree to which we cultivate or fail to cultivate those natural empathetic impulses. That is, we can embrace our communal nature, recognize that we are not lone, self-interested, rational actors naturally at war with everybody else, as Hobbes would have it, but rather arise from and are always embedded in a context of interweaving relationships and therefore interweaving rights, privileges, and obligations. A Confucian would recognize that we can't claim any right without also acknowledging a corresponding obligation. That is, from a Confucian point of view, acting for the good of the community is a recognition of one's own nature and a full fleshing out of one's nature, as opposed to the basically sociopathic truncation of human nature that is typical of the anti-mask, anti-vax crowd who complain, often in large groups with signs, that they are being asked to do literally the bare minimum to help those who are often older and weaker and sicker than themselves not fucking die. A Confucian would also recognize the validity of relevant expertise, that where there is an emerging consensus, even though there may not be an absolute consensus, and quite frankly in the scientific community there virtually never is, but where there is an emerging consensus among expert or informed opinion from various overlapping fields on a particular position, namely that masks do help prevent the spread of disease, then there is an obligation to accept that consensus, not to cherry-pick chosen counterexamples as if one were conducting statistically legitimate or relevant research. There is also an obligation to be sincere, to be intellectually honest, which is one facet, I think, of the virtue of sincerity. That is, we don't engage in motivated reasoning. We simply take the facts as they are, weigh them against our obligations to our community, which we can never escape, only deny, and act accordingly. And honestly, it really is that simple. So in answer to the question posed in the title of this episode, what would Mencius do? 
he'd wear a mask. He'd keep appropriate social distance where recommended by the medical community. He would make sure that if he were in the presence of people whose immune systems might not be as strong as his, he might even take a few extra steps to protect them. And he would honestly accept the emerging expert consensus as it unfolds, changing his position as the consensus itself evolves as they do, and conducting himself always with a sincere regard for the well-being of others. Or, to simplify even further, he would act like a grown-up. And now, on that note, I think I'm going to wrap it up for the day. I will in the future be trying to keep these episodes to within the ballpark of half an hour or so. And I think I'd like to get another one out fairly soon, because, quite frankly, it's fun to be doing these again. In the meantime, if you'd like to get a hold of me, you can find me on email at eclectic.humanist at gmail.com. The Eclectic Humanist Facebook page is still up and running, though I haven't checked in on it for a while, and the same is true of the EC Humanist handle on Twitter. I look forward to talking with you more in the future, hopefully hearing back from some of you. In the meantime, thank you for listening, and as always, be kind to each other. <laughs>